Uh, and it also shows the uh, deep nature of tribalism that is part of human beings that people, for some reason, besides myself and maybe a few others, don't seem to recognize that really uh, Navalny is one of these people who ignites our inner tribalism. If he's against our tribe, he is evil and everything he does is evil. If he is for our tribe, he is good and everything he does is good. And Welcome to Lucas Crobot Show. I'm Lucas Crobot, and this is where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. Today, we are joined again by Tim Kirby, who is an international independent journalist out of Mother Russia, American turned Russian pro-Russian football player and uh, the hot journalist of the hour because of what is going on currently in Russia. Tim, thank you so much for being here on the show. On Lucas, thank you very much for those kind words. Much appreciated. Now, now the reason that we're talking today is because of the the riots that are happening in Russia, the arrests that are happening, the the yeah. unrest, all because of Alexei Navalny's arrest. Who is Alexei? Why was he arrested? What what is the backstory? I don't think a lot of people um, outside of Russia who maybe aren't following this really know what is going on. Now, I'm going to say something that I'm not trying to deflate things, but I want to tell you the real feeling from within Russia, from the standpoint of like an average person, of just how old this is. It's happened so many times, even with him, you know, especially the first time he got arrested and convicted for corruption as someone who battles against corruption, a little bit ironic. And over and over again, every so year or two, there's some sort of gathering of the uh, kids of the somewhat wealthy, uh, mostly downtown, and they're angry, and they're angsty, and they're teenagers, and everything's bad, and they want democracy or whatever, and it dominates the news, and it's just annoying, and it gets in the way of everything else in the country, and uh, lather, rinse, repeat. So that's essentially what's going on here, and uh, uh, Navalny just got convicted to a 3.5-year sentence, which is interesting. The trial is not particularly of any value, uh, because it's one of those trials where uh, it really depends who, what side you're on. If you think that Navalny is some sort of foreign agent who's come here like Vladimir Lenin on a train from Germany, although he came on a plane from Germany, not a train, but kind of similar, uh, to uh, rabble-rouse and uh, destroy Russia, then you believe he's guilty of anything. Uh, if you are on the uh, sort of a more, uh, let's just say, uh, Washington side of uh, seeing the world, uh, then you believe he's innocent of everything and that any Kremlin attempts to uh, so supposedly poison or kill him have all failed uh, because the Kremlin is full of idiots, uh, and so on and so forth. So unfortunately, uh, it's really because you're someone who focuses on getting the truth, and the problem is when it comes to Navalny himself, uh, there really is not much objective truth. It really mm. matters what side you're on, unfortunately. So what what you're saying is there's no, there's it's not a clear-cut issue because— you don't know whether he really was guilty of corruption and what was guilty of these well, crimes. Well, here, let me uh, put it this way. Let's go back to when he was um, uh, convicted uh, already many years ago of that deal with selling off uh, some woodlands, right? The sort of corruption dealing. Now, of course, on his side, he says it's all made up. It's completely fake. Uh, and because he is an activist who's against uh, the Putin status quo, that it was all made up, right? And the other side says the opposite, that, look, this guy's a complete hypocrite. Uh, given the chance, uh, Mr. Hotshot lawyer, uh, he'd sell the country for, you know, 30 pieces of silver. Now, the question is, uh, how have any of us really had the chance to review all the court case materials? 
Pretty much no. Uh, in fact, I don't even think they're really available to the public. So we'll really never know. And that's kind of part of the problem when it gets to actually uh, judging this sort of thing is you don't know. None of these people in the media on either side truly know. Uh, and it also shows the uh, deep nature of tribalism that is part of human beings that people, for some reason, besides myself and maybe a few others, don't seem to recognize that really uh, Navalny is one of these people who ignites our inner tribalism. If he's against our tribe, he is evil and everything he does is evil. If he is for our tribe, he is good and everything he does is good. And somehow all these uh, accusations are completely made up or falsified or whatever. So uh, that's that's why I say that. Well, the, the plot seems to also thicken because back in August, he was poisoned with nerve agents or uh, allegedly poisoned. Yeah. And he spent a number of months in Germany recovering from this poisoning, which Navalny claims was uh, or claims to be from Putin. Um, what is going on there? Is this just kind of the further extension of this uh, war between Navalny and Putin? Well, let's put it this way. Okay, so here we went from something where the court cases, where it's a little bit hidden from us. We don't quite know the details. Now, this is something where it's a matter of logic. Okay, so if the people in power in Russia consider it uh, very important to take him out, as in kill him, the, the idea of using a nerve agent is, I guess, to make uh, what I would assume all the muscles in his body stop working, so his lungs would stop working, thus choking to death by a chemical means. Okay, I think that's, that's the concept there. Now, anyone in their right mind would assume that after being killed by nerve gas, uh, a man, I think he's in his 40s, well, he's way younger than someone who would just drop dead. Okay, right. I'll put it that way. So it would look mysterious. Uh, it was going to happen in a foreign country where the autopsy would surely reveal something, and basically the criminal would be blamed for it 100%. So in that instance, why not just shoot him or cut his head off or do something that's a guaranteed result? Uh, if you're going to get blamed for it anyways. So what's happened, happened, quote, is they tried to kill him in this weird way that didn't work, even though supposedly, especially according to Navalny, the Russian government's full of professional killers. Uh, but so it's sort of the worst of both worlds. You get blamed and you also don't take out this adversary whatsoever. So that's why I'm on the side of logic seems to dictate that this is, this is full of it. This is, not a reasonable way to do things. Furthermore, he voluntarily flew back here. Remember, he wasn't extradited to Russia. Right. So someone, just so I can finish the thought, well, someone that... who is terrified of being killed by this government in this country voluntarily flew here and gave himself up to be inside the prison system where there might not be a whole lot of cameras and there's not going to be a whole lot of outside help, give himself up to that government. That's really hard for me to believe. Yeah, okay. that, when very I hard. when I from the very outside view have read this, what's happened that I do find confusing. Like, okay, well, if he was poisoned outside of Russia, well, it's going to come back on Russia. So, are, are you implying that he faked the poisoning, or that someone else was involved, or it was just a totally made up thing to try to gain political leverage? Um, given the circumstances, it looks to be faked, and I can't really say. The problem is, uh, as someone who's not in the medical profession, I don't know what it would be look what it would look like to be given a small dose of some sort of nerve agent to make something become fake. 
Uh, if you remember that one Ukrainian politician, I can't remember his name. Uh, he claimed that because he got these uh, very right. weird uh, patterns on his face, uh, that it was somehow the Russians did. But again, is if uh, it was critical, which actually uh, getting Ukraine back as to be part of Russia is an extremely uh, critical part of Russia becoming a powerful country again. Uh, so if that was that critical, which it is, again, why not just use more blunt uh, uh, direct means? It's, it's sort of the same thing. And we also saw that same logic with the uh, Skripal uh, case in uh, England with the, the former uh, spy. But also remember, that was he was a spy during the Soviet times. This is way, way back when. And then they somehow chose to poison him. Uh, there seems to be this very repeating story that the Russians try to kill people in these uh, indirect ways um, uh, and, and fail. Uh, one thing, just so you know, that uh, there could be some sort of subconscious racist uh, element to this because the Mongolian Empire, which uh, Europe has always blamed Russia of being sort of basically fake Europeans and actual Mongols, uh, the Mongolians are very famous for poisoning people. So that could be some sort of a weird history wonk, something in someone's subconscious who's uh, doing all this. And I think because the, the other point was that you brought up, which I agree, if if a nation state just tried to kill me, I wouldn't be too eager to get on a plane and fly back. No. In fact, he's putting his entire trust in the Russian uh, uh, police first and then the penitentiary system second, because he also believes that everything he's ever been accused of is a lie. And he's been uh, he's already been run down, uh, run up the river once, right? And, and had to be in jail. So it's really uh, just a, a bizarre reasoning, and that's why I don't uh, believe him. Perhaps on some of the details, I could be wrong. I'm not saying I'm the god of logic that knows everything. Uh, I'm a humble man, uh, but overall, this is just, just uh, too much. But for the protesters, that really doesn't matter. Uh, it's an emotional thing, uh, and for actually for most people, like I said, uh, said many times before, uh, it's generally, this is an issue about more emotions and feelings and they feel that something here is bad and the West is superior or something or whatever. So we're getting into this uh, feelings realm of, uh, with these protests, which are also of course, overblown by the Western media, uh, which is, uh, not uh, very surprising. They tend to do that. Following this logic, then why would he, if he, if he knew this, why would he even fly back to Russia in the first place, like what does he what does he have to gain by going into the prison system? What does he have to gain oh. by putting himself at, at the trust of people that that at least he allegedly say has tried to kill him? Well, the, what does he have to gain? Well, the question is, is sort of what are his um, end goals? Uh, and of course, uh, Navalny is a little bit of a mysterious person. We definitely have a feeling that he's uh, backed by the West, considering I think it was something like uh, legal support from twenty different countries came to his trial. All those countries being from the West, uh, which is amazing. That's uh, been a really hot meme in Russia for sure. Uh, so I would say the end goal tends to look like revolution. And why? Why? Why do I say revolution? Uh, that's because most of the protests have no specific goal in mind. Mm. Uh, this isn't like we want a seven-hour working day. We want to be paid fifteen dollars an hour. We want you know X, Y, and Z that are concrete things that the government could, in theory, give into or compromise on. They're screaming about, we want freedom and we want democracy and that Putin is bad. It's sort of that logic. Well, how do you give someone democracy? It's sort of like with Black Lives Matter. They're like, we want to end racism. Well, as long as someone still feels racism, whether America is very racist or not very racist, well, it's a feeling. Yeah. 
And there's really no way to guarantee that. So as long as they feel there's racism, they have the right to go around burning and torching everything they want, which is really just an excuse to sort of take power. And that's exactly, in a lot of ways, what a lot of our communist revolutions looked like, was just this, this, this excuse. Nothing the other side could say really matters because they're repressing the working class. How dare they? Uh, and this is the same sort of thing. If there, again, if you have a protest with a very specific goal, like um, the Native Americans who unfortunately uh, were um, not exactly treated very well when they wanted to shut down that pipeline, right? That protest was very specific. They didn't say we want to destroy the United States or something like that. Pipeline, close it. Our land, we don't like it. It doesn't matter what reasons. Don't argue with us. We don't like it. That's very concrete. That is not, uh, we want love, uh, rainbows, ponies, and uh, uh, democracy. And uh, that's why there's, um, uh, uh, about that, there's a sort of popular expression uh, made, uh, has become popularized by an extremely uh, successful Russian uh, YouTuber who's a little bit of an older guy. And it's called uh, Young Aged Morons. And that's really what this sort of factor is. And he even said uh, about it that it doesn't matter how old you are, but he, he said that the protest movement is this sort of mentality of a young aged moron who's mm. just sure that if he goes outside and screams a lot, an evil dictatorship will somehow submit and give away all its power to then bring about some type of utopia. And what brings about the utopia? which would be Western-style democracy. Whereas, uh, I don't know, if you've ever walked around France a little bit, uh, uh, it's, there's a lot of nice places, but uh, you haven't found utopia themselves. So it's this very basic, primitive, uh, emotional, and I would say narcissistic worldview. Because a lot of times with modern protesters, be they Black Lives Matter, be they um, uh, the uh, P-word hat movement that uh, supported uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, and even people who I would sometimes agree with, like the people who stormed Capitol Hill, everything is very childish. There's a lot of silly costumes. There's a lot of laughing and smiling. It's a sort of like uh, the joyish glee of the first time you show someone the middle finger when you're six years old without realizing that person could walk over and crush your skull in. Uh, it's an unfortunate reality that we've got into this sort of phase of narcissistic protesting, emotional protesting, rather than actually maybe fighting for something we believe in then again, maybe it means there's nothing left to fight for. So Navalny, where does he sit on the, the political spectrum? Obviously, he's someone who is f fighting against uh, corruption, which at times could be almost as obtuse as, you know, fighting for equality or, you know, the ending of racism. But, you know, where does where would he sit in kind of that political spectrum that would that the, the driving force of these protests be pushing for? Are they pushing for a, a new socialist communist revolution? Well, what uh, he looks like is he reflects uh, the mentality that I would associate with today's post-Maidan Ukraine. But this mentality exists in uh, really a lot of Eastern European countries, especially those that used to be uh, part of the former Soviet Union. And what you get is this weird uh, hybrid between liberal and fascist. And let me try to explain that because it sounds mental. And some people have said the term liberal fascist just to mean people who are liberal in an extreme way. I'm not talking about that. What I mean is that on the one side, they are 100% on the side of Washington. They're, they love their postmodernism. They want to have you know uh, the whole LGBT thing taught in schools. Whether they say it or not, they always go for it. That's what's happening in Ukraine. Very much whatever is going to happen, uh, Washington's foreign policy is God, and we will obey the word of God, okay? But on the other hand, they push a vicious type of nationalism 
where Navalny, uh, in one of his most famous uh, uh, videos, or infamous, depending on how you look at it, uh, although I agree with him that uh, arms control needs to be reduced in Russia, though you can buy a gun here, no matter what people tell you, you can. Uh, it's not like America. Well, it's not like California. Well, it's not like Ohio, where I'm from, but it's better than California. Uh, but uh, so the thing is, is he sort of made this uh, heavy implication that we need to legalize weapons in order to kill minorities. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, he did not who are, who are threat. and he's also of course like a true true pro-washington uh nationalist one of his main goals was also to remove any republics that aren't with russians in them which means again cut russia up until it becomes completely helpless and is just utterly irrelevant so there you go so it's that kind of nationalism because remember nationalism in the west or europe depending is always tolerated as long as it's anti-Russian. So if you're in the Baltic states, you can be a Nazi. If you're in Ukraine, you can be a Nazi, even though your president is actually a Jewish comedian. But you're still some kind of proud Ukrainian Nazi. But the second your nationalism is not connected to Russia, like in Germany or France, oh no. No tiki torch parades for you. And that shows just how open and blatant it is. And you see that once you start living here. So what, hypocrisy, I mean. what crime was he actually uh, arrested and charged with? Because I know uh, part of it uh, I was reading saying that he's already served 11 months of house arrest. And so that's going to be taken off his three and a half year sentence. Uh, I thought it was something like espionage. To be honest, uh, I, I, it's actually, I really don't know. It's sort of a combination of things. Um, I don't know. Uh, do, 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 do. Hold on one second. So let me get the actual in Russian what it is. They don't say, and that's really part of the problem, isn't it? It's not written anywhere. So that's another part of the problem, and uh, another part of the reason why uh, there are certain things in the Russian media that just burn me. So that's one of them. I wanted to find the specific terminology, but it's not uh, not listed. It's just listed always as a dealing with the company Yves Rocher. Well, what, what what I'm finding fascinating about your your position on what's happening, it. It's that it's it's not polarized as far as like, well, this is clearly the fault of one side or the other side, um, but it seems to be very gray all around. It seems to be, be a, a very much a, a mix of he said, she said, and a mix of, well, what is what is the truth? What is real? Um, who is on the, the quote unquote right side of history of this one? But it's also interesting that the the thing that people are protesting for obviously they they want him out of prison and freed but the thing that it seems people are really pushing for is change for the sake of change and with that it brings a lot of confusion at who might be pushing this this uh this narrative or pushing these this uprising right now in Russia well remember uh young people always want change uh, there's something about that age between, I don't know, 15 and maybe 22, 23, yeah. uh, where people want change. And uh, I think Washington understands that. Remember, the gods of marketing are all in the West. They're not here in Russia. And you can really see that. Uh, and it's very frustrating here because uh, in a lot of ways, Russia's uh, losing the ideolo ideological battle for young people. Uh, and in fact, even I think one a person once said the best hope for Russia is that uh, the faster. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, you know, the faster that these protesters uh, are able to uh, get a woman pregnant, uh, the more stability Russia's going to have because all of a sudden they're going to have real problems in their life. You see what I mean? Because remember, 
we, we're talking about this. And again, the way the media makes this issue become between our, even in our discussion here, there's this implication that it's sort of half the country against half the country because there's two sides. I'm telling you, man, it is 98 to two. It is this overwhelming bulk of the masses. They don't care about this guy. They wouldn't pro- probably vote for this guy. If Navalny actually did get to be elected, I really think he would probably be in the single digits. Uh, a lot of people would still would vote for Putin, not out of, uh, well, a lot of people like him. Not as many as they used to. He, the Maidan, changed everything. His approval ratings will never be in the 80s ever again after that, all right? But he has a majority approval rating all the time. So first off, that's good. If there's an election between Navalny and Putin, then you'd get into these. Uh, first off, since Navalny's kind of said that minorities are garbage and he'd cut them out of the country, only maybe the most sort of extreme people who want their little republic cut off to be suffocated uh, would vote for him. The rest would all lockstep vote for Putin. And there's really no actual chance of him winning anything in a fair uh, electoral fight. And that's another thing, because we have to remember that uh, unlike America, where you have this left and right history, generally Russia, uh, Belarus, Kazakhstan, the more successful and stable former Soviet republics all have a more big one party sort of mass, had a strong central leader for a long time with some little orbital parties that kind of push some of their own uh, agendas. Uh, why that model works better, I don't know. But the other places in the former Soviet Union that do not use that model have either continuously been in strife, like in Kyrgyzstan or in uh, Ukraine, or are just pathetic shells of their former selves, like the Baltic states. Let's let's take a minute and and turn to what's actually happening on the ground with the protests there. Um, here are some some clips. His first clip is a, a crowd of people kind of pushing back on the cops. The cops, you can see, they're they're brandishing weapons, guns, and the the crowds uh, sh- clearly shouting and pushing them back, falling back. What's happening here in this clip? Okay, first off, the important thing is only one cop drew his gun. And this is one of those interesting philosophical sort of questions about, well, what, what would you do? Because one of the important things about protesters who want to create some sort of revolution is they always want to show that the government beats or kills people. They need those bloody photographs. And it doesn't really matter how it happens. You know, if there are 3,000 cops out there and one kicks a woman in the stomach, which did happen, that's the juice. Yeah. One woman got kicked in the stomach. Mwah, perfect. Now we have the headlines. That's all we needed from this, right? Because it makes them the entire government evil. Because, Lucas, unfortunately, you and I, we are humans. We are mortal uh, creations of God. Uh, But unfortunately, we are not perfect like our creator. We are flawed and small-minded. And the media allows us to overinflate the meaning of that rather than seeing that, wow, there were some protests and there were a lot of police and only one woman got sort of her rights kind of violated. The police sort of went overboard in this one instance or maybe a couple other instances. You could say, hey, that's actually not bad for this uh, really tense street struggle, right? But we don't think that. We think a woman, a woman, women, we know as men, we're supposed to protect women. Women are the future. They give us children. It's our instincts. How how could this be? So it's the media, media manipulation factor that uh, affects our subconscious. Now what's happening here is raises the question. If you are a riot police officer, so first off, your life depends on the state uh, staying the way it is. 
because the guys in the Birkut, that special division that dealt with protests, uh, right, riot cops in uh, Ukraine, well, when they defended the state after the state fell, their lives became very unpleasant. Let's just say, put it this way, very, very unpleasant and sometimes very short. All right. So you are terrified that everything you've built in your life could be over and you could be killed if there's a revolution. There are people surrounding you. You got five guys there with you. There's a lot more people surrounding you. But you also understand that your orders are no violence. Mm. What do you do? Now, this guy drew a gun. And it's important also to note that in Russia, the cops are supposed to have their gun in the holster, no round in the chamber, holster closed by a latch or a button or whatever. So he had time to think, because that's one part of the Russian laws where it's a little bit different than America. They specifically want the cops to sort of make it a little bit of a pain to draw your gun. So you have to think about it for a second. So was it, he, is, 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 he, is he being the aggressor drawing the gun, which he didn't use, by the way? Or is he actually saying, we're overwhelmed, we're going down, yeah. this is my last best shot? And again, that's really open to your interpretation. That's why I think it's an interesting video. And it's a video that's become very popular. One video I tried to send you, but I uh, was an idiot and failed to send the link properly, is an interesting video where a guy walks up to a line of these uh, you know, riot cops, draws a baseball bat, and the riot cop, who's you know used to this, he's pretty trained, he actually puts the block in on the bat before he could actually swing it and knocks the guy down. Another very famous image. But again, it's like one of these things where, okay, a guy's coming at you with a bat. How do you not beat him up? You know, it's sort of both ways. Uh, what can you do? And vice versa. From the protester side, it's like, well, we want to have a protest. We want this protest to get results. Well, how does your protest get results without a little bit of a scuffle, without some nice pictures, right? So in some ways, it is kind of silly to believe in the idea that we're going to have freedom of speech, but you're only allowed to protest on this particular area at this particular time. We're going to box you off, and that's your special protest. Well, that doesn't work either. It's a flawed logic on both sides. That's another reason why the democratic idea that we hold in our minds is a complete farce. Well, I think the... Your point of the the media extrapolating on one instance and kind of saying this is happening everywhere, uh, that's yeah. happened in the West, especially with the, the BLM riots, where you know they're saying black people are being killed in the streets every day. Um, when you look at the statistics of you know police brutality um, in America, and it's extremely extremely low. So I, I think it's a one of those extrapolations of media to serve their own their own narrative that they are trying to push. Let's look at this second clip that you also sent me. Here's a, a man who is falling down into the snow, sc screaming at the top of his, his lungs as three cops kind of calmly try to, try to arrest him and everyone around with media badges and stuff are, are videoing it. And he's just kind of being a, a limp limp body in the snow as the, the cops drag him off. What's happening here? Yeah, so uh, I can't remember what the exact uh, wording he used was. I'm uh, not a master of quotes. But this is another also interesting question about how the police are supposed to do their job. So this guy gets out of line and they grab him. And all of a sudden he basically says, I, like, I'm sick. I'm hurt. I can't do like, you know, like uh, would be it a panic attack or a stroke or a heart attack. He implies that he's like, you know, needs an ambulance, basically. Oh, I don't think he used that specific terminology, but 
So then, like, that's another thing. What do you do? So as a policeman, you're like, okay, you're you're coming with me. And the guy's just like, I'm dying. Uh, again, and it's also a very interesting video because it shows this contrast where uh, on the Western media, woman got kicked in the stomach. Perfect. And then this one where the police are like, oh, uh, maybe he is dying. Oh, no. What do we do? Uh, they're trying to remember their uh, policy book in their head of what to do in these kind of situations. Uh, it shows sort of the opposite side of police brutality. Uh, so I just thought that that was interesting. It's also making a lot of rounds on the Russian internet. So yeah. very interesting, very interesting. It, it, it's as you say because when I saw it, I'm like, okay, this this is must be the narrative that's being pushed is saying, look at these police, you know, arresting this helpless man and how brutal. But if it's if it's actually framed, the police are like, okay, well, if you're dying, then let's get you to let's get you to a hospital, let's get you to uh, an ambulance, and that tells. A, a very different story. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's like that classic meme that shows sort of a man running and being chased, and uh, uh, in the in the in the far picture, I believe it looks like he's uh, 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 trying to run and help someone, but in the frame of the picture, it looks like he's got a knife to attack the other guy. It's one of those things. So, you know, you also sent me a couple couple tweets. Here's this first tweet that you sent out that is saying. Moscow nudged into the courtyard where residents of one of the apartments on the second floor began to shoot at us with a trauma pistol, which is uh, your translation is a, a gun that fires rubber bullets. Yeah. So uh, just so you guys know, in Russia, uh, the average citizen can go out and buy what's called a trauma pistol, which shoots rubber bullets, and they can buy an assault shotgun, which you can't buy in California. So uh, they're very, uh, very, very common things in Russia when you're talking about what the average person owns in terms of weapon. A lot of assault shotguns out there, lots of them, and they're cheap. Now, uh, so what she's saying is that if the other side of the story is a tweet uh, from this woman who is a uh, uh, part of this uh, protest here, is that the locals give them the chance to spies them. And I can tell you something that's, again, anecdotal. That's anecdotal evidence that one person chose to actually shoot at the protesters because <laughs> they hate them so much. Uh, anecdotal evidence on my side is uh, the uh, sort of uh, other side of the coin where, uh, as like you mentioned, uh, American football in Russia, go Moscow Spartans, right? Uh, the men, I heard the guys, you know, talking uh, after practice. And uh, a lot of these guys are dads, right? We're all fathers. We're all a little bit older. It takes money to uh, have some free time to uh, play sports, doesn't it? And uh, these guys that I were, I'll put it this way. If they are allowed if the police would allow our football team and, and people like them to go out there and counter protest, it would turn into a meat grinder because these guys, again, fairly you know successful. They've got the wives. They've got the kids. They've got the apartments. They don't want anything to change. They're happy with the things the way they are. And these guys are big and they're angry. And that's another interesting thing about democracy is that... Uh, in a lot of these Eastern European countries, when there's a uh, color revolution, no one ever, none of these leaders were popular. Lukashenko is actually fairly popular. Putin is fairly popular. Uh, a lot of them are. Now, in the Ukraine Maidan situation, no. Yanukovych was garbage. Everyone hated him. He had no But these popular leaders, except for one person far away, Maduro uh, in Venezuela, never use their supporters to counter protest. And I don't understand this. Because, look, I'll tell you, if there was a call from the Kremlin to, and he said, 
guys, my guys, go out and counter protest. If something happens, I could write a lot of pardons. It would be over. This would be over here. This would have been over in a day in Belarus because there's a lot of people who have a much higher vested interest in the stability of the state who are pro Putin than uh, this sort of emotional, uh, colorful haired crowd that actually gathers to protest. And so, in some ways, it's really Russia's uh, lack of faith in its own patriots, a complete lack of faith in its own patriots, mm. uh, that uh, makes this fail. In fact, I can tell you one thing about that, which was the most insulting thing I've ever seen for uh, a Russian person. Uh, was I was part of this sort of like army reality show where I went to the Russian army for a week. Horrible experience. Uh, and But one thing I noticed is that uh, there's a, a big cage in the barracks. And at the end of the day, you must submit your gun and they check for it and check for all the ammo. And there's a big, huge sign with big red letters. In fact, I think there's two or three just to make sure you see it. That show, that uh, uh, basically writes the penalty for stealing your gun or doing something bad with it. How insulting is that? To someone who's going to give their life for this country, to, to make it clear that, hey, monkey, mm. you can only touch your weapon if we tell you where and how because you're too stupid to do it yourself. And that's a real uh, psychological sort of disease that exists, not just here, but throughout a lot of uh, Eastern Europe and a lot of other countries, where if you think about it, Venezuela, Venezuela's poor. Uh, Nicolas Maduro has a nice personality, but he's no Hugo Chavez, is he? Uh, he probably should have lost that color revolution. But what he did is he turned the masses on his side. He basically said, guys, put on a red shirt, have at it. And he won, despite being the leader of a very poor, very fragile country compared to modern Russia. And does there that come from does that come from uh, a belief structure or kind of an underlying premise that people don't have enough kind of whether it's moral agency or intelligence or autonomy to be able to act intelligently? And that there's just such a level of distrust for the the people that even support them, that they would essentially treat their their citizens that way? Uh, let me, uh, there's two answers. Let me first go with the official answer that I generally hear from Russian people, is that Russians say that, be especially because of the Russian Revolution, but even before that, Russians don't uh, trust themselves uh, because of what happened during the revolution sort of proved to Russians themselves that they have this sort of dark animal nature about what happened during the 1920s. You know, the church is being destroyed, uh, priests being slaughtered, uh, that, that whole business, right? A lot of backstabbing in politics. So there's that. But uh, even before that, um, Russians also, there's this other sort of theory that Russians have that Russians uh, love freedom so much that they tend to take way too much of it. So for example, uh, if a Russian feels free to eat at a buffet or drink vodka, he's going to take all of it. Okay. And they, so that's why Russians sort of want to restrict each other is this fear that given freedom, Russians go nuts. Okay. That's, that's their view of themselves, which is different from my view of them uh, as a foreigner. My view as a foreigner, which I actually just talked about uh, on a, before this, I was uh, doing a part of a forum uh, uh, about the media. And I talked about this very topic uh, is that Russians have a extremely deep-seated, unshaking, unbreakable by me inferiority complex. 
Russians are absolutely and 100% convinced to the bone that they are inferior to the West, even though the West is changing. If you have time and you want to hear it, I can go into the history of why that is the case, but it's very, very long. I can't do it in like under a minute. It's going to take, it's going to, it's going to be a five minute answer. Well, well, we we are running out of time, so we'll have to have you back on the show to talk about uh, some of the roots of that inferiority complex. But my my closing question is, you know, right now in the past year, we have seen uh, civil unrest and riots um, across the Western world, um, partly because of COVID, partly because of the the BLM riots in America. But even I believe there's some 63 or 73 odd nations last year that saw civil unrest and protest. Mm-hmm concerning the, the the COVID lockdowns. And so in your opinion, is what we, we're seeing a, a kind of further spill out of that unrest that's happening now in Russia? And will some people are saying that this could be the end of Putin's reign? Do you see that happening or no? Uh, uh, about the end of Putin's reign. Unfortunately, there's a very large boy who cried wolf factor involved with declaring that the evil Putin regime will end because every year mainstream media journalists write articles that because of X, Y, or Z reason, this is the end of the Putin era. Uh, In fact, I believe at the very beginning of his career, so didn't he take over in 1999? I believe there are even articles from like 2001 that said the end is nigh for Putin. Okay, so it's boy who cries wolf. Who knows? Uh, We'll see. Won't we? Uh, I would say probably not because there's really nothing that's so radically changed here. Uh, another important thing is that the difference here is that everyone, again, these are our assumptions, is that, well, Russia is known for being strict and harsh because of communism, right? Uh, but the whole COVID thing here was really only maybe so much strict in Moscow. And the real strict, strict part where people were, you know, not allowed to go to parks or uh, only supposed to uh, go less than 100 meters from your house uh, or apartment building, uh, that only lasted three months. That was it. And then from then, uh, I mean, for certain people who have this certain uh, cosmopolitan bourgeois mentality, uh, it's hard to go to nightclubs still. The whole like night scene is dead. But again, well, maybe that does affect a lot of the protesters because they're that kind of person. It certainly doesn't affect my old butt, does it? So again, the whole COVID thing was much lighter and gentler in Russia. Yes, businesses did close. Uh, I had a beloved uh, donut shop uh, next to where my son goes to play soccer. That closed. Uh, I've heard from other people that they have lost some. There have been some job losses for sure, but it's nothing in comparison to what happened in Europe or America or especially Australia. Australia is really sort of taken to a whole new level. Do you think then this is part of a kind of a greater global geopolitical or attempt to shift things geopolitically? Well, it certainly coincides with Biden getting the reins, uh, you know, uh, and it could even be a signal because remember a lot of times when uh, people come into power, uh, even people who are very postmodern still like their messages and their their signals. And uh, well, what were the big signals? I mean, uh, what did Biden do? First thing he did is say pipeline. No, we're going to get that oil and resources and energy from foreign places while throwing money away at some fake uh, green energy, something that'll never work. We're going back to that. We're going back to the Obama strategy. And another thing that could have been a signal is this whole thing with Navalny is let's just say hypothetically, uh, he is 
very, very heavily influenced by the West. I believe that to be true. Maybe you don't, doesn't matter. If that is the case, then it seems kind of like it sort of lined up that, well, the Democrats successfully got their inauguration, they're back behind the reins, and Russia, now it's time to pay. It is time to pay for your supposed uh, support of Trump, your uh, rejection of our values, democratic, uh, progressive uh, values, time to pay, and we're going to show you. And that was just another sort of message that he sent when getting office. Just like how Trump, I believe, uh, signed uh, the um, uh, uh, sort of uh, he um, oh, what's it? Uh, the new he changed the nuances of Obamacare. Obamacare radically changed very quickly. That was one quick message that Trump said, like this. No, why he chose that instead of other things, I don't know. But that was really his sort of big first signal to the world. Well, Tim, thank you so much for being on the show. So insightful, um, extremely complex situation there in Russia, and we'll just follow it and, and see how it plays out. But I think, I think the the overarching um, the overarching takeaway or, or kind of light that you're shedding on this subject is that it goes it goes much much deeper than just the arrest of Navalny, and it's not just a skin deep issue. But these are multiple layers from decades uh, and and battling ideologies that are really kind of pushing push this to this limit. So thank you so much for being uh, back here on the show. Uh, absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you for having me, and I'm uh, glad to talk to you anytime. Have a good one. You too. That is all for this segment with Tim Kirby. But don't go away. We will be right back with our closing Weaver and Loom segment. Welcome back to Weaver and Loom, the part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday life so that we can weave our destiny and own our future. Today's quote is appropriately from Dostoevsky, the famous Russian writer in his book, The Brothers Karamazov, and he pens this, I love mankind, he said. But I find to my amazement that the more I love mankind as a whole, the less I love man in particular. And I find this to ring extremely true, especially in, in, in light of what we have seen happen over the last year when it comes particularly to a lot of postmodern narratives and and this idea that man is basically good and, oh, we just love mankind. There's there's this idea out there that, oh, we just need to love people. We need to love mankind and that we're so good and righteous and beautiful and amazing. But the reality tends to be quite different. The reality tends to be that as we romanticize and idolize mankind, we become more and more frustrated and upset and bittered and, and angry against people around us. And we, we lose sight of the individual and loving that person, loving the intricacies of that person. My, I, I often think about this of, you know, well, we just need to fall, fall more in love with, you know, 
mankind or this this people group or this segment of the population or we just need to you know find more love and compassion for you know fill in the blank but my rebuttal to that has always been well I've I've never fallen in love with American people I'm an American and I I love myself and I love my my family and my wife and kids and my friends who are American and there's aspects of American culture that I really like, but it's not, I can't say that I've fallen in love with the American people. And likewise, I live in the Middle East and I can't necessarily say that, well, I've fallen in love with the Arab people or the Persian people, but I love a lot of aspects of Arab culture. I love a lot of aspects of, of the different ethnicities and expressions of humanity that we can find in culture. But what I have fallen in love with is friends, is individuals. It's as I sit down and get to talk to someone face-to-face, that is where I find love. That is where I find connection. That is where I find appreciation for a culture, whether it's American culture in American culture, I mean, that's so broad. Like what, what American, New York American culture, West Coast, California American culture, uh, Southern Texas, Louisiana American culture, Chicago American culture, what American culture? But I fall in love with individuals. I fall in love with people. I find things that I can appreciate about a person. And when we focus on these big macro humankind, mankind, we can become so jaded and so frustrated and not see the eyes of the person in front of us. So my encouragement to you is don't worry about whatever, what mankind's doing, what the, the whole group of people are doing. Instead, care about the relationships that you have been given to steward. Take care of the people who are in front of you. Take care of the people that you walk past on the street or in the checkout line at the store and look them in the eyes and fall in love and grow in your heart with with generosity and compassion for the one person in front of you. Not the masses, but the one person in front of you. I'm reminded of when Brandon Polk came on the show and says so often we feel overwhelmed by the the needs of the world. And we say, well, I I can't help everyone, so I'm not going to not going to help anyone. But he, he said in this, in this interview, he said, it's not about trying to help everyone in the world, but do you have one seat at your table? And if you have one seat at your table, invite that one person to your table and connect with them. Connect with the one. Don't worry about the masses. That is all for this episode. Thank you so much for being with me on the show. Please, if you have a question, WhatsApp me at plus one two zero two nine two two zero two two zero, and I will send you free stickers as a thank you for asking a question that appears here on the show and my book, Anchored, The Discipline to Stop Drifting. I wrote this book in a time of my life where I felt like I could not get traction. I could not find focus. I could not reach my goals. And more than that, my goals and my metrics were so off 
that it, I was driving myself into the ground. So I wrote this book as a manifesto to myself. And I think about these principles every day. That is all for this episode. Remember, you are someone who goes out and tries to understand the world around you. First, you got to understand the world. And if you do that, then you can find the power to own your future.